the hottest news in macroeconomics this week. We're recording on the 11th of November, Veterans Day in the United States and Remembrance Day across much of the rest of the Western world, I think, Jeff, is uh, inflation. Inflation. It started because the United States reported their consumer price index numbers, which were very high. But it's not just a story about the United States. We're going to talk about inflation and the bond market's reaction. We're going to focus on the United States, but Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhammer Partners, would you be surprised that in the last 36 hours, there's been a litany of reports about high inflation readings around the world? Let me give you just some examples. Mozambique inflation rate near four-year high. Don't worry, there are more important countries too coming up. Japan producer prices rise to the most in near four decades. Belarus inflation rate near five-year high. El Salvador rate near at 10-year high. Brazil inflation rate at new five-year high. Greek October inflation rate highest since 2011. Moldova, Jeff. Where else would you hear about this? Moldova, October inflation rate, highest since 2016. Lithuania, 12-year high. Danish inflation rate, highest since 2011. Romania, highest in over a decade. Germany, confirmed at 4.5%, the highest since 1993. It goes on. Norway, producer price inflation hits record. Again, month after month, China producer Inflation highest since 95. Ecuador inflation rate over five-year high. Mexico inflation rate at near four-year high. And then we had the results from the United States. Which was a near 30-year high. We've got CPIs, at least. We have consumer price indices indicating consumer prices that are, that are uh, not only rising, but in October seem to have accelerated. So that's really kind of the story here is that we have high rates of consumer price increases. But is it inflation? And that's the the discussion that you and I have been having with the audience for how many months now, ever since this really began. There's a difference between a consumer consumer price index rising for other reasons and consumer prices going up because of actual inflation, which you're going to force me to use the term, I think, eventually monetary inflation, which is really all that inflation is. It's an excessive money supply in the real economy, too much money chasing too few goods. That's inflation. When the the real question here is how do we tell what's creating consumer price increases at any period in time and any period in history? What do we use? How do we sort out one CPI from another? Well, we go to the bond market. You say we, but I think it's best that you and I not do it because we may be wrong in any particular time. It's best to rely on the Wisdom of the crowds that have a lot of money riding and identifying pervasive, persistent monetary inflation versus transitory supply demand imbalances that, while terrible, it may last longer than you would think when you say transitory, are not going to be there long term. I guess that's the question we have to define. What is long term? We're going to talk about the components of the CPI numbers first. Then we're going to turn to the bond market second. So we'll talk about the components, Jeff. Uh, Oh, by the way, if anyone wants to read along, they can, following your work at the Alhambra Investments blog, they can go and find the article, How Can a CPI Now Above Six Price Like This? And it was posted yesterday, November 10th, 2021. Jeff, the results were 
like all just very, very high, whether you look at core or just the headline. If you look at the headline month over month change from 1950 to 2021, this was in the 95th percentile, the October reading. The year over year change for the headline between 85th and 90th percentile. Even if you exclude energy and food and you get look at core, the core month over month change, looking at all months, 1957 through 2021, October's reading was in the 90th percentile and the core year over year change, 75th percentile. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that consumer prices are rising. And the million dollar question, or actually the multi-trillion dollar question is why? And that's really, you know, when we start to break in and dig into the CPI numbers, what you see is that, you know, what's amplifying these price increases is essentially two basic, two major parts of the bucket. And that's energy and cars. You've got new vehicle prices that are going up, but used vehicle prices, which are just through the roof. And believe it or not, even though it's not a relatively high part of the CPI bucket, used cars, because not everybody buys used cars every year. It has created a substantial amount of this. It's responsible for or has contributed a substantial amount of these annual gains all year. So if you have if you're not buying a used car, your experience with consumer prices is different. And of course, we know what's going on in the automobile segment. It's not monetary inflation. It's not too much money chasing too few cars. It's literally too few cars for whatever level of demand. You only need to look at some of these social media posts about empty dealer lots, and you can see what's driving prices, of course, in new cars, as well as used cars, because if there aren't any new cars available, used cars are going to be in high demand. Then the other part of it, of course, is what everybody has focused on, and rightfully so, which is crude oil, and crude oil flowing into everybody's personal experience in the form of gasoline. Every time you go fill up your car, you notice how much more expensive it is to do so, especially over the last five or six months. And again, but that's not, you know, as usually it might be, or historically it has been, this is not oil prices rising because the Federal Reserve is printing money or the euro dollar system is legitimately printing money as it had in the run-up to the pre in the pre-crisis era. This is, again, a supply story and a very clear supply story. You know, OPEC countries have said, we're not going to raise production to match demand because we kind of like these high prices. And even domestically in the United States, you, uh, U.S. oil and gas production is down about 13% from where it was before the COVID recession. So American domestic producers are holding down production too, even as prices rise. Let's talk about that some more, but that's very interesting. Now, I have heard that natural gas prices are crazy high. We discussed it several episodes ago and that there are geographic factors. There was an earthquake in one field, natural gas field and geopolitical factors that perhaps Russia isn't too keen on saving Europe's rear sector and giving them uh, natural gas. Okay, so geopolitical factors. But then you mentioned OPEC and the United States producers are not increasing production, which is unusual. I would think if you see high prices, you would want to increase production. So are you suggesting that perhaps they are not convinced that these prices are going to be sustainable, that the demand for continued acceleration in prices is not going to be there? Yeah, and you have to remember that a lot of domestic production is the expensive oil, the shale oil that is, you know, that is not profitable unless oil prices stick around at, you know, some level, you know, 
people have thrown around seventy dollars or so as a break-even point for a lot of those those production plays. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. We don't really know for sure. But it does seem to be what's going on here, where oil producers need to be convinced that oil prices are going to stick around in the 80s, 70s, 80s, maybe the 90s or more before they start ramping back up production. Because over the last 18 months, they have obviously very clearly said, even as oil prices are rising steadily, we're not going to raise production levels. And so you have to ask yourself, why is that happening? Why are producers not willing to ramp up production to the level, even just to the levels that they were before, uh, before the recession last year? Geopolitics, or they're worried about demand and demand being sustainable. That's the other part of it, right? Because that's, that's, you know, everything we've been talking about so far is supply, right? It's supply, 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 limited supply, limited supply. And that's true. But why are supplies so much limited? Some of it is, you know, regular logistical snafus that we've been hearing about port traffic, rail yards all screwed up and things like that. But do you have to also consider that, you know, as we're moving forward, maybe suppliers and producers are thinking this, the party's, you know, it's not going to last forever. There's a downside. There's a there's a there's a uh, slowdown here. We don't know how big that slowdown's going to be. And it's specifically in terms of oil, any slowdown in demand, oil tends to be a little bit touchy about those those periods when demand is becomes uncertain or question un, or a little more uh, questionable than it had been. You know, I'm thinking 2014, 2015, for example, or 2018 and 2019, where oil prices seem to fall very quickly. And for at least most of the mainstream, it seemed it came about in unexpected, surprising fashion. So maybe oil producers, having been bitten once too many times in the past, are a little bit more reluctant this time to embrace the rise in oil prices because there are legitimate concerns about how dependable demand will be in the future. That's the point I wanted to bring up, is that their fingers have been singed already. They've been bitten several times. You mentioned a couple of examples. 2008 is another example. You didn't mention that was a precipitous fall in oil prices. I don't remember about 2011 and 12, Jeff. I remember other commodity prices fell dramatically in that time period. Uh, do you remember what happened to oil in that in that time span? It took a little bit of a step back in 2011, but it was over $100 a barrel all the way into 2014. And 2014 was then oil catching up with the rest of the commodity space, which I think, you know, you're right, Emil. I think that's really the lesson that oil producers have kind of held in the back of their mind where they thought, you know, 2013 seems to be okay. The rest of the commodity space is a mess, but we're doing okay. And then you get into 2014 when the global economy is supposed to be accelerating and all of a sudden the global economy falls off a cliff. Nobody warned oil producers and it just was a complete mess for a couple of years, which made, you know, I think what your point here which was a very powerful lesson in the oil community, in the oil space, which was, let's be a little bit cautious about, you know, overproducing, especially the less profitable production areas. Let's turn to the bond market reaction. Yesterday, the yields went up precipitously, meaning, well, precipitously, you tell me if you agree with that description, they went up quite sharply relative to where they were on earlier this week. But if we take a little bit bigger perspective, they had been in a downtrend for a while. We'll talk about that later in uh, our part two of our episode. We'll talk about something you call the landmine and bond yields and the direction that they're heading down. But bond yields went up. We're going to talk about how the bond market reacted in four or so different measures here. We'll look at the nominal yield, the yield curve, 
treasury inflation protected security break even, so the anticipated inflation rate, the tips yield curve and yield real rates. So let's start with nominal rates. What did they do yesterday on the news? You're right. Yeah. It was a sell-off and it was a sharp sell-off, but I don't think it was anything unusual. Of course, it's going to be overhyped in the media because anytime the bond market ever sells off, it's you know front page news. And then they don't report on all the other times where bond yields are actually falling, which is why, mm. as, you're, as you were mentioning and alluding to here, bond yields, even after the sell-off, are basically where they were about a week ago. And they're still significantly less than they were eight months ago. So, you know, they're lower than the peak, which was set back in the middle of March, uh, middle of March this year. And you have to wonder what's going on here, because it's not just that we had one six percent CPI in October. There were four five plus CPI, five percent CPIs in the months before then. And then the the one before that was actually four point nine nine percent. So for the last six months in a row, we've had very elevated CPIs. Yet during those six months including yesterday's sell-off, bond yields have been falling in, by and large, not in a straight line or not directly, but their bond yields are going moving lower or at least sideways, at least in the long end, where some of the short-term rates are moving a little bit higher, which is a response to something other than CPIs as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that. If I would tell the audience there's one key takeaway, I would say it was that, what you just mentioned, that we've had several consecutive eye-watering, paint-blistering CPI readings, and the bond market has been heading downwards generally during this time. And during the worst of it, it's been just flat if we take a longer-term perspective. Okay, so yesterday, though, the news came out, bonds sold off sharply. What about relative measure, the yield curve? Yeah, and I think that's the most important one because the sell-off was mostly focused on the short end, which of course, as everybody knows, is is uh, more influenced by the Federal Reserve's potential policies in the future. So the bond market was basically saying, "Hey, they're tapering anyway." So the chances they actually get to a rate hike, which is you know, it affects short-term parts of the yield curve because the Federal Reserve offers alternative monetary rates, which you have to factor into your return risk-return consideration. So if you think the Fed is going to get to some rate hikes, then short-term rates down the you know in that that the area where the rate hikes are going to happen are going to start to adjust to those potential rate hikes. So that's what's going on in the short end. The market's saying, look, the Federal Reserve, these CPIs, they're going to convince the Fed to taper and then eventually rate hike. There's a good chance that it actually happens. And that's what's going on in the short end. Now, the long end is saying, yeah, that's that's what the Fed's going to do, but it's wrong to do it because these CPIs are not going to stick around. And the growth and growth and opportunity that's embedded in longer-term expectations and longer-term bond yields are saying, the economy is slowing down, not picking up. So the Fed is going to do its taper. It's going to affect the short run, maybe some rate hikes eventually if they get that far. But it's not going to go very far at all because the economic climate, the longer run or intermediate longer run economic climate is getting is growing worse by the month. So what we have as a result of the short end adjusting to the Fed and the long end picturing growth and opportunity becoming more and more difficult is you have a flattening yield curve. So even yesterday, during the sharp sell-off, most of it was in the short end. You had the five-year Treasury, for example, sell off, I think it was 12 or 13 basis points, or maybe it actually was more, maybe it was 14 or 15. And the 10-year Treasury only sold off about uh, 10 or 11. So even the, the five-year, 10-year spread yesterday flattened by a, a couple of basis points, 
bringing the yield curve spread down to about 33.34, which is the flattest this important part of the yield curve has been since early August of 2020, back when we were really close to recession. So the, the yield curve message altogether is, yeah, after yesterday's CPI, the Fed is probably going to be more convinced to continue these taper than rate hike policies. And the long end saying they were they're absolutely wrong to do so. If the audience is wondering why are we so focused on the bond market, I urge them to go back to episode 150, where we reviewed how the bond market interpreted both monetary inflation as well as transitory supply, demand imbalances throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 2000s, and 2010s. And it's this market that is consistently prescient in identifying and determining which flavor of price increases we're witnessing. All right, let's talk about Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. The break-evens, the headline that we all look at, those rose, signifying inflation is anticipated. But again, let's talk about the relative measure of the tips curve. Jeff, what did we see there? Yeah, well, we start out tips gets paid or gets reimbursed by the government by the CPI. So the CPI is very important in, t- in tips. Therefore, the, you know, tips don't really care about if it's inflation or a supply shock because the government's going to pay you for either one. So tips is sort of a measure of the CPI rated inflation. And of course, going back to October 21st, you know, when we had the last five year tips auction, the shorter run inflation expectation, which are break-even rates, and a break-even rate is simply the real yield minus the nominal yield of the same maturity. It's a distance between what you're actually getting in tips versus the nominal U.S. Treasury, which tells you a measure of a relative measure, not a one-for-one measure of what the market is expecting for average CPI inflation that it's going to be reimbursed by the government when the, when the instrument matures. And the break-even rates, they, got, they went up after that auction, the five-year auction in late October, the break, the short run break even rate skyrocketed up into a record high. Then after yesterday's CPI, the five year went up even higher, as you would expect, because you know we have higher CPI averages that the government is going to end up paying to tips holders when those instruments come due. Now the ten year break even rate went up too, but it's gone up a lot less than the five year, and it's almost like the five year is kind of yanking the ten year upward with it, because there seems to be some sort of at least skepticism or reluctance to embrace CPI protection at the longer, the farther end of the tips curve, whether it's the 10-year or even the 30-year. Last final thought from me, Jeff, a couple of minutes. Uh, Well, I want to raise the idea of real yields. Where are they? And do you have any concluding thoughts regarding this episode? Yeah. So what we see is that actual inflation expectations diminish over time. We see that not only in the the tips curve inversion, but also the five-year, five-year forward rate, which is has never really moved out of the post-2014 rut. So altogether, what the bond market is saying is that, yes, the CPI went up, it went up even higher, but it's still not inflation. It's not going to last. It's not going to stick around because as we see in real yields, which are the other side of tips, the other side of break-evens, the economic climate is just awful. And, And the economic potential that's in the intermediate and longer term that's being pictured by real yields, I mean, real yields at record lows tells you that the market is saying, this is not in an economic climate conducive to that's that's conducive to inflation because there can't be the money flowing through it that would create actual recovery and economic activity that's going to last beyond any short run supply factor. In part two of this episode, we're going to discuss something that Jeff calls the landmine, which I believe means how bond markets react as they're approaching some sort of break in the economic outlook. <laughs> 
and where we were before the CPI news hit. So stick around. About a week before this recording, Lisa Abramovich tweeted out the following. Good luck trying to come up with a fundamental narrative for bond yields right now. The October jobs report was better than expected, with the labor market showing real signs of momentum, and yields fell. U.S. two-year yields and are 10 basis points lower than they were just days ago. How does a better-than-expected jobs market and solid wage growth lead traders to push back expectations of a Fed rate hike? It doesn't make sense intuitively. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, is the answer, what is landmine, if this is a, a developing landmine? What does that mean? The landmine set the scene for us. Well, it does make intuitive sense because when you're looking at just the U.S. labor market, that's both a lagging indicator and just the U.S. the U.S. economy and U.S. labor market. The global bond market is a function of global monetary conditions, therefore the global economy. So it may be that the U.S. labor market seems to go seems to be doing well, but maybe the rest of the world and the rest of the global economy is not. And so it's not really a dichotomy of condition. It's just one of timing. We've seen this many times before where it looks like, hey, the U.S. is going to zoom off into the Hollywood sunset, you know, the, the perfect ending, fairy tale, and all that, when the rest of the world has already started to move into something more malignant and maybe some sort of sinister condition. We saw as 2018 is a perfect example. And what a landmine is, is where the bond market says there's a lot of negative potential. doesn't matter if the U.S. economy looks like it's decoupling or not. The potential's bad. And then when the landmine strikes, what that says is, okay, it's no longer downside risks or downside potential. The downside is actually here. It has happened. And so that's why we focus so much on these landmine events, because it's it's the transition from a potential negative outcome to the negative outcome is all but inevitable after this point. Now, I am always confused as to whether or not the landmine refers to the bond market yields or the economy, because as you say, the landmine signals, hey, this has happened. The bad news is here. And I think we best see it in the bond market falling steeply, prices rising and yields falling very steeply. Or are we referring to economic accounts that are coming in very poor? No, it's not data. It's, it's, you're right. It's the real economy taking place in real time. And so we can't see the real economy in real time. We can't see the real economy at any time, but, you know, cause we have to depend upon economic statistics, but the bond market does because what is the bond market? The bond market is the financial institutions that operate within the monetary system trading on their close contacts in, in close proximity to what's happening in the actual economy. So the real economy stuff is taking place at the same time the bond market is telling you that stuff is happening. And it's not just, you know, it's it's real economy falling off even before you see it in the economic data. It's, you know, monetary problems happening. You think about repo collateral, derivative collateral and things like that. It's all of these negative things that we can't otherwise observe that are actually happening. And that's really what the landmine is. It's the bond market giving you the visible sign that something is going on beyond which Things will not be the same. It's like I said before, before the landmine, it's economic risk. It, you know, it's downside risk. It's negative potential. It's deflationary potential. 
The landmine happens. Real economy, real monetary system takes a step, a really bad step onto something. And then the bond market reflects that bad thing happening by, you know, with a sharp drop in yields, with a sharp drop, for example, in swap spreads, which tells you that this thing has happened. And beyond that point, because this thing has happened, the bond market is saying this is going to have a lasting lingering effect on economic conditions such that, you know, they're no longer downside risk. It actually is a downturn. It actually is a downside happening at that point. And this landmine is part of the morphology, part of the pattern that we see during each of these euro dollar shortages, credit collateral shortages that have erupted over the around the world or in different regions over the last 14 years. And what are some of the other markers along the way, Jeff, before we get to the landmine? We see curves twisting, distorting, inverting at times, and not just the yield curve. Although we do pay a lot of attention on the yield curve, but you have the euro dollar futures curve. You see things in swap spread. You see the rising dollar exchange value, which is another signal that, hey, things are not going the right way. But it really is the landmine when it happens that transitions from, as I said, potential to reality, where before it's like, you know, maybe something, yeah, the dollar's going up and inflation expectations may be falling, but maybe we can still avoid it. Maybe it's just a short term rough, rough spot that we'll get out of. And then after the landmine, you just say, no, this is. This is what's going to happen. There's really not much chance of avoiding. Now, the best one in my mind is the one that happened in 2018, September, October, November of, uh, yeah, 2018. And we saw a precipitous fall in yields. And that coincided right when the economy was starting to come undone after about a year of other indications suggesting it, like the dollar and other monetary indications. In this article that we're going to go over, which is called Landmine Review, the big one, which you posted on the 9th of November at Alhambra Investments, we go over the very first one, well, the very first episode of them during Eurodollar One, also known as the global financial crisis. And you tell us that there actually was uh, four of these things during that one period. Isn't that right? Four, yeah, not only was there four of them, the fourth one of them to me was the absolute most perfect indicator, most, most perfect manifestation of what we're, the, uh, the behavior that we're talking about here where essentially the bond market throws in the towel. And remember, bond yields, what we're talking about here, specifically bond yields. As Irving Fisher said more than a century ago, and history has proven time and time again in all sorts of locations around the world, long-term bond yields are a combination of growth and inflation expectations or growth and opportunity expectations, probably the better way to put it. And so if the bond market throws in the towel where the yield curve takes this tumble, what it's really saying is that it's not just that what's going on today is going to impact tomorrow. It's going to impact a whole lot of tomorrows from here on. So these landmines are sort of a marker that says something material has changed in the underlying economic and monetary fundamentals such that growth and inflation opportunity has diminished so much that, uh, that, that it's, it's completely obvious on the yield curve or chart of bond yield. And the, the one that we're referencing, one the, the perfect example, was taking place in the autumn of 2008, right when TARP was announced. You have to tell us what that is, Troubled Asset Relief Program, what its intention was, I guess, to buy up mortgages. And then all of a sudden, the about face, the 180 degree turn by the U.S. Department of the Treasury and how they started using those funds and how everyone was confused 
that the, what the money was being used for. But you tell us, and then later they tell us, these authorities, they make the point of telling us, well, the circumstances changed and so we changed our plan. That's not how you interpret it and that's not how the bond market interpreted no, and it's funny because you can you can see how everything changed or how how the whole situation evolved. Remember, September, mid September two thousand eight, Lehman, AIG, Wachovia, all that stuff happened. And the initial step was the Bush administration went to Congress and say, "You got to give us a pile of money so we can buy up these subprime mortgages that are causing all this mess." Because as everybody knows, it's all about subprime mortgages. Well, the Congress said we don't really think we should do this, and then all of a sudden we had the worst financial panic since the Great Depression. And suddenly the emergency or was it economic emergency economic stabilization act was passed on October 3rd, 2008, which among other things authorized the $700 billion slush fund known as TARP or the troubled asset relief program, which as its name implies meant that the government was going to buy up these toxic waste subprime mortgages and therefore fix the entire crisis because it was all about subprime mortgages. Well, as soon as that happened, the crisis only got worse so that two weeks after it was after that law was passed, we're talking about October, I think, 14th of 2008, Tre uh, Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson already changed the terms of TARP, where instead of buying toxic waste, he started investing in the preferred stock of eight of the largest U.S. banks. So we went from let's buy up these toxic waste subprime mortgages that are causing the crisis to haphazardly recapitalizing some of the largest banks to try to instill confidence in the banking system. Go forward another couple of weeks to early November, and what does ha what happens again? Hank Paulson gets on TV and says, oh, guess what? We're not going to just buy the preferred stock of some of these banks. We're going to also use TARP funds to bail out Citigroup, which was at the time one of the largest banking institutions in the entire world. So you can kind of see how from the beginning of TARP to by November 2008, a spread of you know more than two months, the situation kept getting worse and worse and worse, no matter what the government was doing. Or at the same time, by the way, that I like to point out all the time, the Federal Reserve had at that point expanded its balance sheet and had expanded the systemic level of bank reserves to more than 600 billion. The money printing we keep hearing about, the, the overflowing liquidity that we hear about even today. So during these specific two and a half month period, we have the government throwing everything at the crisis, and yet it only got worse and worse and worse. So by the time we get to early November, that's when the landmine struck. That's when things really took a turn for the absolute worst, which is before then, the market said, maybe this crisis stuff, yeah, it's going to be bad. It's going to be nasty, but maybe it'll just be a, maybe it'll just be a recession. Maybe it will just be a, a nasty recession. We'll get over it and we'll go back to normal. But after all of this stuff happened, after the government proved that it could not stem the crisis, no matter what it did, by that last tarp change seemed to be the final straw. The bond market threw in the towel and said, this thing isn't going to be just a one-off temporary recession, as bad as it might have been. This thing is going to be with us for a very long time. And that was the initial landmine. Middle of November 2008 until December 2008, yields absolutely collapsed which was the market saying growth and inflation, growth and opportunity perceptions from that point forward in the long run are so impaired that we're going to own only safe and liquid instruments from this time forward. You just said that was the initial landmine, and that's how I always remember it. But then you remind us in your article, you say actually that was the fourth landmine in the sequence. The first one, 
July 9th, 2007 through September 10th. Then the second one, October 15th through November 26th. And then December 26th through January 23rd, 2008. And in each time we sort of see the bond market, the yield curve sloping downward, accelerating, then a pause, taking a look around, and then another acceleration down. Yeah, it's almost like a stair step, right? It's it, the, the market takes a stair step down and then kind of goes sideways. And those those sideways, you know, those pauses in these in between these landmines are the market assessing how how policymakers are responding to the unfolding escalating crisis. As you mentioned, the first original landmine was the market saying subprime is not contained. And the first landmine in the summer of two thousand seven. Within that period was uh, the events of August 9th which we all know was sort of the final break, the final last straw. And then the Federal Reserve responded to that with a couple of emergency measures in September, including a 50 basis point rate cut, which the market said, well, okay, maybe let's let's step back and reassess. But that only lasted for a couple of weeks. And then there was another landmine in October uh, going on into, into November. And then the Fed came out and announced, oh, we're going to fight the crisis with stuff we've never done before. We're going to hold TAF auctions. We're going to do overseas dollar swaps. And the market took a step back. You know, the landmine, the second landmine stopped and yields kind of rose a little bit, but mostly were sideways. And then starting December 26 of 2007, even though that was when the first TAF auctions had actually been done, even though the first overseas dollar swaps had already been introduced into the marketplace, you had the third landmine, which lasted into January. And so this series of three landmines in 2007 was the bond market telling you the Federal Reserve is literally behind the curve in, in whatever the Fed did. It was not working. So the land, you know, some people have said that, you know, I was talking with Maggie Lake of, of Real Vision just yesterday about this, how uh, the Bear Stearns in, in March of 2008 caught everybody by surprise. And I told her it shouldn't have, because if you were paying attention to the bond market in 2007, this series of three landmines had told you by the time you got to Bear Stearns, it was like, yeah, that makes sense because everything that had happened over the summer was painted for you in the yield curve. There's an excellent quote by you. The steep drop in yields during these things is essentially the most visible confirmation of a forthright, irreconcilable deflationary shift to the acceptable, meaning realistic, probability spectrum. The economic data comes along only later to confirm the increasingly awful possibility bonds have already priced. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to explain why we're even talking about this and how it relates to present day. It's not just a history lesson. But before we do, we already talked about the first series of landmines during the euro dollar number one global financial crisis. And uh, during the fourth one, 2018 through 2020, Jeff, in another article, you remind us about the one that happened in 2014, landmine lurking, Got to make tantrum happen before it's too late again. You posted it on November 9th. Uh, you know, we have like five minutes or so left in the show, this episode. Tell us a little bit about 2014, and then we'll move on to what it all means for today. It was, again, the same pattern. Before, before around December 2014, you had this sort of lingering, nagging, gnawing pessimism, sort of Ill, Ill feeling that maybe the economy wasn't living up to the hype. You know, you had the labor market numbers. Going back to how you started this segment, the labor market numbers were accelerating and robust in 2014, yet bond yields were sinking. They weren't, they weren't collapsing, they weren't plummeting, but they were going 
you know, meticulously, methodically lower and lower and lower throughout 2014, which was the indication that downside potential was rising despite the fact the U.S. labor market seemed to be, you know, you know, the best job market in a decade, as it was called back then. And the bond market was saying that, yeah, maybe the U.S. job market is doing okay. It's not doing great. Maybe it's doing okay. But when we look around the rest of the world, China, emerging markets, things are starting to go in the wrong way. We're seeing tightening in the euro dollar system. We're seeing, we're seeing tightening up of collateral chains and things like that. They were potentially deflationary, potentially bad for the economy. And then we had the events, obviously, of October 15th, 2014, which was a collateral bust, uh, one of the biggest and most obvious ones. And then we get to December of 2014, where bond yields that have been going lower and lower suddenly sank precipitously. And again, that was the landmine, which is this is no longer downside potential. This is downside reality. So this is the economy had stepped on a, the global economy had stepped on a landmine, which meant at some point, no matter how it was going up before then, you know, even if it seemed like the U.S. was going well, decoupling from everyone else passed on the other side of the landmine into 2015 and beyond, everything was going to resynchronize again in the wrong direction. But once the landmine struck in late 2014, that was the market's message that there's no longer just downside potential, it is downside reality, which is, of course, exactly what happened. So we have several examples now of the bond market correctly anticipating real-time economic deterioration, very serious, actual, no longer anticipated deterioration, we were maybe seeing something similar recently. Now, we're recording this on the 11th of November, and the day before, bond yields in the United States, and I think around the world, rose, rose, which would suggest maybe that we've disqualified the kind of downward trend we were on. But Jeff, it wasn't just in the United States where yields were falling for quite a long time. Germany, Britain, Japan, the United States, yields were falling. And I think that's why you started writing about the landmine is that you were seeing a similarity. Is that right, Jeff? That you were seeing in the most recent month or so or longer, you tell me, falling yields that reminded us of these previous warnings. Yeah, the falling yields are sort of moving in that direction. But it's not, as you pointed out, Emil, it's not just it's not just the treasury market. It's not just treasury yields or the yield curve. It's all sorts of, I mean, we've been talking about this all year. You know, the PBOC's balance sheet, what are we seeing from that? We're seeing dollar shortage type indications, the tick data, you know, swap spreads, any, any number of indications all, all across the financial and monetary landscape that before now have been saying dollar shortage, dollar shortage, dollar shortage, deflationary potential, deflationary potential, deflationary potential. So all of the ingredients are there, including in terms of just macroeconomic views, a growth scare. There's a now palpable perception that Whatever has been going on in the global economy, call it recovery if you want. I won't. The, the rebound from the 2020 lows, maybe it's exhausted. Maybe it's rolling over. And so you put together dollar shortage, collateral chains collapsing, you know, overbids and T-bills, things like that, you know, deflationary type indications with now we have all these massive CPIs that the bond market is ignoring, not just ignoring, but yields going a little bit lower how close are we to reaching that point of no return? How close are we to seeing the real economy strike a landmine and the bond market tell us about it, where we're seeing not just downside potential, but the actual downside materialize? And so I think you know what, I, what I'm trying to get at here in reviewing these past landmines is to say, this is what we're looking for. It hasn't happened yet, 
but all the ingredients are there. They're in the kitchen ready to be made. And maybe it's just a matter of time before we see one, or maybe we'll be lucky this time and avoid it. That would be the absolute positive. The best case scenario is that we don't strike a landmine and there's still possibility that happens. But when you see all of these things grouped together in exactly the same fashion as we've seen, you know, as you pointed out, Emil, four times before, including that, that one group, the first group, which was a group of four, it was all those same types of things happening where we see dollar shortage, lack of growth and opportunity and bond yields that start to, to slowly incrementally build in. And then all of a sudden it just happens. In part three of this episode, we're going to talk about the taper, not the 2021 taper, but the one that happened in 2013. We're going to look at the FOMC meeting minutes, try to get a sense of what executives and leaders in the monetary order were thinking. Before the most recent inflation readings from around the world and the bond market sell-off, everyone was talking about the central bank's tapering, including the Federal Reserve. We're going to talk to Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners, about the second taper, the one, the more famous one in 2013. And we're going to do that by utilizing his blog post on the 3rd of November at the Alhambra Investments website. What does taper look like from the inside? Not at all what you'd think. Tell us about the most famous taper of all, the second one, Jeff. Yeah, was it the second one or was it the third one? And I, you know, we get into this mess with Q, quantitative easing too. How do we count the, the QE programs? We have to we have to take a step back and actually count the tapering of the QE programs too, because the first grouping of taper was actually in 2009 and lasting into 2010, which was actually two distinct tapers because the Fed tapered its first QE. The U.S. Treasury purchase so that it, in August and November and September, by August, by our, excuse me, by October 2009, they would be done buying Treasuries, but they tapered the mortgage bond securities, the MBS part of the, the QE1, over a six-month period lasting until March of 2010. So there were two tapers at the first time, and you're right, the more famous taper, only because of the bond market quote-unquote tantrum was in 2013. And as you correctly pointed out, and I love the way that you point it, or the way that you that you labeled it, the 2013 taper, regardless of whether it was the second or third, was a taper celebration in which the bond market very briefly agreed with Ben Bernanke's assessment behind tapering, or the rationale behind tapering, which was maybe the economy is actually improving this time. There's a small possibility, or at least a better possibility that's a chance, and so bond yields were rising, not because they were, the Fed was going to be buying fewer bonds, but because growth and opportunity expectations, growth inflation expectations were a little bit, maybe a little bit better than they had been previously, certainly during 2011 and 2012. So it was a taper celebration. And that's why most people remember 2013. Statement. Why did the 2009 and 2010 taper not create the same sort of sell-off in safe assets? Uh, do you remember what happened at that time? Was the bond market looking through all of this and saying, I see a European sovereign debt crisis, a Greek uh, debt crisis, a flash crash, and all sorts of other trouble on the horizon? Absolutely. It's it's the bond market saying, hey, this QE1 business, well, doesn't seem to be working so well. And by the way, we're seeing some darkening clouds on the horizon, including what maybe a so European sovereign crisis might do 
to repo collateral in repo markets and therefore a potential rerun of the 2008 crisis that had little to do with subprime mortgages and a whole hell of a lot to do with repo and collateral. So even though the Fed was tapering QE, there was no celebration in 2009 and 2010, quite the opposite, in fact, which should sound very familiar, because the market was saying, yeah, you guys are tapering because you think the economy is recovering. We see all these problems potentially ahead. And by the way, the real economy is not coming back as much as a recovery would have it either. So we got all sorts of darkening clouds that, you know, the Fed was ignoring, thinking things were going in the right direction when the bond market didn't have a tantrum, didn't celebrate the fact that QE1 was working because it wasn't. I forgot to add Dubai to that list of problems, things that were going off kilter when they shouldn't have been. Yeah, sort of out of the yes. blue, right? <laughs> so that makes... But it, what, that's the point, you know, that it was out of the blue for people who are just kind of casually observing, thinking QE's money printing and everything's fine. But to the bond market, Dubai was sort of like, yeah, we were kind of waiting for these kinds of next shoes to drop. Okay, so we're moving forward in time. Now we're at the most famous taper, only because there was uh, the bond market had a fit, which it wasn't a fit. And what we're going to do, Jeff, I suppose the the takeaway from this is that we're going to go through the transcript of a particular FOMC meeting. Let me see if I can find it in time. If not, you jump in. Tell me which one it was. March 2014? No, 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 no. No, no. December of 2013. Yes. It was the meeting where they voted for taper itself. Perfect. And remember, let's set the scene further here because what most people believe of quantitative easing is that it's money printing and that the bank reserves that show up as a result of it, their liquidity, their money. So you would expect that, okay, when they talk about QE and adding, you know, doing these, these quantitative large-scale asset purchases, they're talking about the money supply. And when they're talking about tapering QE, they must be talking about, oh, we're going to reduce the growth in the money supply. That's got to be what occupies their mind because that's what QE is, right? If it's money printing, then tapering money printing should have very real concrete monetary implications, which should be the focus and central point of discussion at the meeting in which they vote to taper that money print. And that meeting, as you said, was December 2013. I even have it written down here specifically, December 13, a moment ago. What I need is I need those people with the placards at the Tonight Show and, and so forth. Big placards so that I can read everything. Cue cards. Card. Oh my God. Okay, yeah. back to the actual thing that's important. You just said it's the central bank. They're in charge of money, are they? They're tapering. It should be a huge discussion about money. And in 245 pages of transcript text, ladies and gentlemen, all of which Jeff read several times, they only mention money 14 times. But you say, well, I say only. The audience might think, well, 14 times is a lot of times. But as you point out, 10 of them referred to money market funds. Three were about money in a very non-technical sense. And only once was broad money supply, money demand even men not mentioned. So they weren't talking about money. They were talking about something else, which we'll get to. I don't know. I mean, 14 times out of 295. I mean, that's once every 20 pages. So even if they were talking about money supply, that's not very frequently in a very extensive, exhaustive conversation. And that was the point I'm trying to make. You know, the one time where the one guy, I forget who it was, brought up money supply, it was sort of, it was just a throwaway comment. It was not a serious discussion and it didn't go any further than there. So in the entire discussion, which is over, you know, lengthy conversations over a two-day period, 
money supply was never really raised at all during any of it. This is the key takeaway, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Snyder. These people do something very different than what the public is led to believe. Their entire regime is based on manipulating emotion. I am now going to read quotes, basically. And then, Jeff, you just, just because these are very surprising to the audience. Jeff, I'm going to read this transcript and then you tell me, is it A, money, or B, manipulation? James Bullard. I've been worried during the last few years that the committee's promises to stay low for a long time were inadvertently sending a very pessimistic signal about the future of the U.S. economy. Today, however, we will take a concrete action that expresses some confidence in the prospects for U.S. growth and labor markets going forward. But my judgment is, is that the labor market improvement has become too compelling to ignore, and therefore it's wise to taper a small amount at this meeting. Right. I mean, it's, it's the idea that, hey, it's, we need to send, if we, if we don't taper, if we continue to do QE, that's going to send a pessimistic signal to the economy, to the markets. And we want to project confidence, which is really what taper was all about. And really, that's exactly what Ben Bernanke had said originally, which is one reason why it was a taper celebration, not a tantrum, because the bond market agreed with him that maybe, you know, you should be confident about the economy because things maybe did look like they were picking up. It's not about, hey, does the economy have the right amount of money flowing through it? It's about how do we position people's expectations and emotions so that the good things that we think are happening can be sustained into the future? How can we manipulate psychology into a positive, optimistic sentiment that becomes some, for, some form of psychological-induced macroeconomic process? Charles L. Evans. Jeff, market operations or psychological operations? Quote, if we include the language in paragraph two that indicates that we're not complacent about low inflation, that's really important for me in assessing that tapering is not likely to lead to greater tightening. So, Mr. Chairman, I can support alternative B as long as there's no dilution of the very important message about our concern over low inflation and as long as the strength in forward guidance language is not altered in a way that makes it appear to be tightening. I'm sorry. This, you just have to laugh at this. I mean, as tragic and as important and consequential as it is, it is so the opposite of what people think it should be. Right. Remember, if you go back to 2013, I know it was eight years ago, but it was an incredibly important period of time. And there was this discussion about how taper was tightening. The idea that, you know, hey, we're printing money. We're going to cut back on the amount of money we're printing. Isn't that tightening? And from the Federal Reserve perspective and really mainstream orthodox economics perspective, taper only becomes tightening if the Fed uses the wrong language about it. If they don't send the right kind of signal, then taper becomes tightening. It's not a diminishment of the money supply. It's, oh, we've, we've accidentally introduced doubt into the minds of people who are going to take it the exact wrong way and behave in the wrong way or, or in a way that's contrary to how we want them to behave. So if we if we put out our statement about tapering with just the right language, and believe me, they spent quite a bit of time arguing over verbiage, not money supply, wording of these statements because they were concerned taper magically transforms into tightening if they don't get the wording just right that it portrays the exact right message they want to send. This is monetary policy, by the way. This is how it actually works, not just in December of 2013, 
But every time there is a monetary policy discussion, I know it's most people can't, are probably going to have a you know sort of a what do you mean this is what monetary policy is? But I'm telling you, you don't have to take my word for it. You can read these transcripts for yourself, and what you will see is this is monetary policy. There's no money in it. It's all about sending signals and messages. It's almost like you know the CIA's in, in psychological operations. The right now there's some discussion whether or not President Biden is going to reappoint uh, Chairman Powell to another term or perhaps have someone else join the team and be the chairman. There's a talk that it'll be either Powell or Lael Brainerd, but I nominate Peter Sokolowski, the lexicro lexico I can't say it, lexicographer, lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. That would have been a very funny joke. Had I been able to read lexicographer. I think it still could because the message is there. The message behind, maybe you fumble the words, words, Emil, as I'm doing right now. But it's it's that ridiculous. It really is that ridiculous. And people think I'm crazy when I say these things, that the Fed doesn't do money, that's all pop psychology, and this is all absurd puppet show. I'm telling you, just read the transcript. That's why I use their own words against them. Because it really is as bad as I'm making out to be. They have no idea what goes on in the monetary system to the point they don't even try. And they haven't tried for decades and decades. And when you can't do money, what else can you do? Well, if you pretend enough and you get enough people to believe that you're money printing, then it all really does come down to psychology. Unfortunately, the real world doesn't work that way. It works terrific in econometric models because they always assume psychology is effective. But in the real world, it doesn't work out. So here are these people having this absolutely ridiculous, absurd, satirical, almost you know surreal discussion about a wording in a world that's screaming out for, hey, we still have money problems here. We have a shortage of money. Why do you think interest rates are low and going lower? Why do you think the taper celebration was so stunted? It only lasted until September in Eurodollar futures, for example. Why do you think already in late 2013, there was all sorts of currency crisis around the world? These people were talking about the adverbs that need to go into their statement. Don't let me not discuss your dollar futures before the end of the show, Jeff. But first, I have another pop quiz here for you. Is this printing money or is this propaganda media? Jeremy C. Stein, transcript, quote, as a couple of other people have noted, I think just purely in terms of messaging, I don't think it's an opportune time to taper. Recent news has been positive, and doing it now allows us to come across with a relatively upbeat message. We're doing it because the outlook has improved, more or less full stop. So I think now we've been basically dealt a reasonably good hand in terms of messaging. So I think it's a good time to play it. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's, uh, I've got it's not, hey, the economy needs this amount of money and we need a little bit extra to make sure everything, you know, markets flow smoothly. That's what people are taught. That's what people are supposed to believe. That's supposed to be liquidity behind bankers. That's not what this stuff is. None of it. Quantitative easing, tapering, quantitative tight. None of it. It's all about how do we project just the right message so that the, uh, economic participants so that the stock market continues to go higher, all these other things. It's all about psychology. And it's not even good psychology. I've got more comments here from Mr. Lockhart, Mr. Kocher Lakota, Mr. English. We could, you know, Emil, we could just, we could spend hours, we could just read the entire transcript from, from beginning to end. 
I mean, it would take you a long time to do it. I mean, 245 pages is a long time. Take my word for it. <laughs> that's all you see. It's This is the discussions these people have. It's not about money supply. It's not about, it's not even about bank reserves. It's about what message, what language, how do we portray, you know, how do we keep taper from magically becoming tightening if we don't use the right phrase? It's just that that's what monetary policy is. And that's because there's no money in it. Now, one of the quotes here by Mr. William C. Vice Chairman Dudley raises Eurodollar Our futures. Favorite. <laughs> Our well, favorite guy. Maybe it's redemption. So, Jeff, did he raise Eurodollar futures at this point to say maybe we shouldn't be doing this taper thing or maybe we should rethink our entire existence because this, this system here is telling us that the world is uh, not quite how we believe it to be? Or did he raise it for some completely other purpose? And then let's bring it to present day because you have a nice chart at the very end of this article that shows present day Eurodollar futures and how they compare back all the way to 2002. And what does that message tell us? So, Jeff, what was Eurodollar futures raised for? Why back then? Well, Mr. Dudley was of the position that Eurodollar futures, as we said, the curve changed around September 5th of 2013. What she said was successful messaging. The Fed had, through forward guidance control, detached rate hikes from tapering. So the Eurodollar futures curve in Dudley's mind was saying, Oh, we get it. You guys aren't going to immediately raise rate hikes for a long time. This tapering process is going to take a while. And so we shouldn't price uh, rate hikes for further down the road. That was his message, that the Eurodollar futures was confirming this, this word salad of a monetary policy, when in fact, as we know through history and how everything developed, Eurodollar futures stopped their taper celebration in September 2013. So the entire last four months of the year, were actually not pricing forward guidance or lower for longer. They were pricing lower LIBOR in the future because the world was the deflationary potential around the world was rising. The fact that the things the, the monetary system was tightening and the economic conditions themselves were going the wrong way. So leave it to Bill Dudley to repeatedly look at these market signals and get them completely backwards. So the guy who's supposed to be most technically proficient about these things is the guy who always gets everything backwards. So the Eurodollar futures were saying, you guys think things are improving when in fact we're already starting to say, see concrete signs that things are actually not improving, in fact deteriorating, which the bond market would join the very first day of 2014. So only a couple weeks after the Fed voted to taper, when Jeremy Stein said we've been dealt a great hand, even the Treasury market said, no, you weren't, you really weren't. I'm looking at this curve, this Eurodollar futures curve. I don't even see what Dudley was seeing. I don't see it at all. I just see them rising, closing in on 100, expecting lower short-term rates in the future, like essentially the whole time. So it seemed like it was warning the whole time. That's what yeah, Dudley's point was, lower for longer. So yes, we're going to taper QE, but we're going to hold rates at zero for a long period of time see, to make I sure see. the economy goes forward. So what he was saying is, yes, that's what Eurodollar futures are pricing. But they were shouldn't have been pricing low interest rates all the way into the future. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he got okay. that part wrong. Eurodollar futures were pricing lower LIBOR, not just in 2014 and 2015, but in 2016, 2017, and on into the absolute future, which is exactly what happened. So Dudley got that completely wrong because he was seeing what he wanted to see. A couple of minutes left, Jeff. The Eurodollar futures curve right now is basically. If you take a look at your chart here, going back through 2002, 
it's essentially at all-time highs. It's not at all-time highs. It's come off a little bit. But if anyone would say that this signals anything other than things are still not quite very good or bad, I don't know what they're what they're looking at. This it's nowhere near any of the other reflations where you start going the other way and you start expecting higher, bigger rates of uh, lower interest, you know, higher short-term rates in the future. That's how. That's why you know when I think about reflation, I don't think about it as the world is getting better. That would be recovery. Hmm. Reflation to me is the world is less bad than it was a few months ago or a few years ago. You know, think about 2018, 2019. Or 2017, 2018, for example, uh, we had reflation that was uh, to that point the weakest reflation, which was simply that the global economy and the the uh, global monetary system was wasn't getting better necessarily. It was just it wasn't getting worse. It wasn't as bad as it was in 2014, 2015, and early 2016. And so that's what we're seeing in 2021 is that the world isn't maybe isn't as bad as it was in 2020. But since that's such an incredibly low standard, it's such an incredibly awful comparison, that's not really a meaningful change. And so all of these curves, including the yield curve, including euro dollar futures curve, swap spreads, and everything else, the rising U.S. dollar exchange rate, the fact the U.S. dollar exchange rate didn't fall all that much, it's a reflation is a relative condition where the world maybe doesn't seem as bad as it was the year before. Is that any reason to, you know, Project confidence by tapering QE? I don't think so. And I don't think the market thinks so either. Jeff, another fantastic show. I loved it. I hope we educated and entertained the audience. I'm going to go practice saying lexicographer. And I will talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Emil. Thank you.